Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. And coming up on today's show, a new poll shows the Conservatives strengthening their lead over the Liberals. Is Canada's recycling industry broken? Is the stuff in your blue box actually getting recycled? And the Prime Minister was in Cambridge today at the Toyota plant for a big announcement in regard to their success going forward. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, new poll from Ledger has some interesting results, putting the Conservatives at 40%, Liberals at 27%, and the NDP and the Green uh, neck and neck at 12 and 11%. Um, how does this... Uh, many thought that with the SNC-Lavalin affair that... Now that it had kind of subsided, that uh, the numbers would start to level out a bit. And um, what we're seeing at this point anyway, and, you know, you put into polls what you want to put into them. Uh, That being said, not a positive uh, showing for the Liberals at this time. Let's bring in Christo Avalis, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. And he is with us now. Christo, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Are you surprised that the numbers are still showing flat for the Liberals? They're still continuing to decline. I mean, it's an interesting poll. I mean, the one thing that's happening, especially at the federal level, is we get a lot of different pollsters who have different methodologies and different histories and... And not in an explicit sense, but like, you know, historically certain pollsters have biases, like they tend to, say, overestimate liberal support or overestimate conservatives or underestimate New Democrats or overestimate Greens, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's not surprising to see a poll like this, but it is seemingly a little bit against the grain. You know, for instance, the NDP in most polls is anywhere from 15 to 20. This has them at 12. That's a bit low. The Liberals being in the high 20s is probably a bit low. They're more in the mid-30s. The Conservatives are pretty much in a lead, but I think a lot of pollsters would uh, dispute the size of this lead, that their lead might be more like three or four points uh, rather than than 13 points, which seems a bit extreme. You know, this is an online poll, and it's not that online polls are bad, but you know, it is harder to calculate things like margins of error for them. You could do a proxy calculation to say that the margin of error is basically about 2.5 for something like this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, all of these things combined mean that when you're looking at polls, the most important thing to do is to look at a whole series of them. Yeah. Because no one pollster has the full picture. And to look at polls relative to that particular pollster. So, for instance, you know, a poll that consistently said had the conservatives at 35 all of a sudden showing them at 40, that means something. Whereas if a pollster can kind of consistently had the conservatives well above the liberals, you might say, well, maybe nothing's changed at all. And this pollster is just seeing same old, same old. So we remember what happened in in the slide uh, happening during the SNC-Lavalin affair. Uh, Why do you think things haven't bounced back? Why do you think things are, are continuing to trend downwards for the prime minister? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because, again, some holsters have indicated that there's at least a partial climb back. Okay. Um, that, 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 that Justin Trudeau has at least slowly and only partially gained back some of what he lost. But the reason why it hasn't fully come back or the reason why some holsters have shown, um, you know, either he's stagnating at what he cratered at or that he continues to fall a little bit is simply because... You know, the governments, the longer they're in power, and this isn't a, an old yeah. government, they haven't had one full term, but they're not brand new, and, uh, you know, tend to get a little bit less benefit of the doubt. And I think it's also hurting Justin Trudeau that his personal numbers have fallen. Now, some polls still have them decently high. Some of them have him in the negatives now. But relative to what they were even, say, eight months ago, six months ago even, his, not, his personal pr- approval ratings are quite a bit low. And because the Liberal Party's victory in 2015 and a lot of their popularity during, say, the first half of this government was tied into Justin Trudeau's personal popularity, mm-hmm. it's not a surprise that as that popularity number, at the very least, goes back to kind of a neutral level, where Canadians are sort of 50-50 on him, um, that's going to weaken his ability to really... Um, you know, uh, bounce back quickly from the, from the SNC-Lavalin scandal. So do you feel that the Liberals have stopped the bleeding? I'm not sure. 
I'm not sure. It's an interesting question. On the one hand, you would say that SNC isn't in the news as much as it was. Yeah. As you know, as uh, between uh, between my being on CHML and being on a lot of other sources, I think I. I, I think I personally talked about SNC for I think 14 days straight. It was a big story. It was. Yeah. I mean, it went it on forever. Yeah. It was a massive story, and I think rightfully so. I think it got a, the appropriate amount, not too much, not too little, attention that it deserved. But it has sort of gone away a little bit, mm-hmm. so it might well be the case that the bleeding from it has stopped. But again, drip, 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 things can come back. What if Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott have more to say? What happens when and if they choose to join another political party, it comes back. I think the bigger issue is whether the bleeding or not has stopped. I think it's that this scandal um, strikes at certain elements of Trudeau's kind of strength, which was that this perception that he was, you know, a man that supported diversity and he was a man that supported, you know, this gender equal cabinet. And whether or not you actually believe that, that this, this, he deserves to take a hit over this, the reality is, and I think for some people, it's tarnished one of his, his elements. And it's sort of tarnished this image of him being very positive and very understanding. You know, whether that's uh, with Selena Cesar Chavan, you know, the, the accusations that Justin Trudeau was rather short with her when she, you know, declared an interest not to run again. These things have eaten away at his personal ratings. Now, the bleeding might stop but it might be harder for him to get back into Canadians' good books. doesn't mean he can't win again, mm-hmm. but it does mean that you know, his charisma alone can't carry him. And as you noted uh, kind of as we came into this interview, Justin Trudeau's selfies used to kind of go uncritically examined. Yeah. Even at moments where, whether you agree or not, maybe some people would find it a little inappropriate to have selfies at a funeral. Mm-hmm. You know, now... You know, with the, the selfie at the at the at the, the you know the site of the the flood the flood relief, mm-hmm. whether or not you actually feel that was a, a a real story or whether it was overblown, the reality is that the prime minister isn't getting away with some of the things that he used to get away with, and that's in part because people know him. He's sort of old news, and again, he might not be unpopular, but he's not popular right now. How will that change the way he campaigns for the next election? Do you think, Christo? Well, I think he has to be, uh, I think one thing is, and this is something, you know, the, uh, all political parties have a thing that they can't be, right? Mm-hmm. And so with the conservatives have to be very careful to not be seen as, as mean or yep. uncompassionate. Liberals, for liberals, it's arrogance. Mm-hmm. Liberals can't be seen as entitled or arrogant. That's what largely, you know, scandals uh, played a role, but that's what largely ended the last liberal regime was a perception that they were arrogant, that they took their right to rule as, as divine or as, mm-hmm. as ordained, right? And whether or not they actually believe that, Canadians saw that and their opponents were able to exploit it. And I think Justin Trudeau, as people become less enamored with him, has to be especially careful not to come off as arrogant or as entitled to the position he has. And that's going to apply to a lot of his key cabinet ministers. I think that, you know, because it's not just about him, he might have to be more policy-centered and oriented on things like that. Where his record is strong, you'll have to speak about his record. In areas where he needs to improve, you have to work on that. I don't think a personality campaign will have the same kind of effectiveness as it did going out. And that's one, because he's less popular, but two, when you're an opposition leader with a relatively short record and people don't, you know, you don't have a time in government, you know, your personality is a bigger part of who you are. But Justin Trudeau has been, you know, Canada's leader for, for about four years now. And so there'll be, there'll be a more, I think, more of a need to to have him work within those confines. Uh, many said uh, after reading this poll that, uh, you know, the obvious uh, signs of, of, of Trudeau, but also that the, the Conservatives were soft and that Andrew Scheer was not resonating. Why don't you think Andrew Scheer is resonating with voters? Well, you know, the thing, the, 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 the strength of Scheer when that Conservative race happened is that no one really hated him. And that's why he won. Hmm. Because if you looked at the first ballot, he wasn't leading. Maxime Bernier had a, 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 you know, had a very good first ballot. And, and Scheer sort of reeled him in round by round. I think there were 13 rounds on that, on that ballot. or There was a lot of them. And he reeled him in just by the, the, you know, the tiniest of margins on that very final ballot. And that's how that contest ended. So the benefit of Scheer there is no one in the party really disdained him. But the reality is, is that he maybe was never a, a, a character of great charisma. And I think a lot of Canadians um, uh, haven't warmed up to him like that. 
he's not necessarily a, a, a person without any charisma, but he's sort of a quieter guy. Right. He doesn't have that kind of style that, that, that Justin Trudeau does. He doesn't stand out in some ways like Jagmeet Singh. You know, they're all very young, you know, guys, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're not, it's not like he's a stodgy old man. Um, but he, he comes off, I think, as, as rather quiet like that. And I think that one of the challenges for him is also that the PPC, although it hasn't really taken off, is sort of a threat to him. And there's a large group of voters that are wary of, of, of conservatives um, and, and some of the policies. And I think that Doug Ford's unpopularity could pose problems for him um, in Ontario and in other parts of the country, as they say, well, Doug Ford promised not to do a whole bunch of stuff, and he's doing it anyway. What if Andrew Shear's pulling the wool over our eyes? That could be a liability to him. Uh, can't let you go without uh, talking to you about uh, how the fabric of the country is changing, um, and and specifically, most recently, in, in uh, Prince Edward Island, where they have elected a PC minority government, and the Green is the, is the official opposition. Your thoughts on this, on, on how Trudeau handles a changing country this way? Well, you know, the, the PEI example is very interesting, because... PEI is a, like much of the Maritimes, the, you know, the, the, the Conservative Party is generally more moderate in those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a shared experience of poverty in those regions. I think people are more cognizant of that fact. So even Conservative parties can't usually be deeply austerity-minded in their approach. And if you look at PEI, the, the, the policy gaps between the Liberals, the Conservatives, or the Progressive Conservatives and the Greens are actually quite minor. Um, and so one of the factors here is that while this is yet another conservative win, in a sense, you can say that they've had a bit of a streak across the country, this government's going to be quite different for a couple reasons. Yeah. As you know, one is that it's a minority government, which limits, to, uh, to some degree at least, the, the policies they can and cannot implement. But, but, but beyond that, there's also the reality that he's already said, for instance, he's not joining in on the carbon tax fight. He sees no interest in that. Mm-hmm. And that could be a, a, a factor because it is a minority. Mm-hmm. And uh, green issues are extremely popular in, in PEI, not just with green voters, but with, with con- progressive conservative and liberal voters. They, they rank environmental issues very highly on that island. But it could also just be based on, on this, this, this sense that you know, he's not really a conservative in the way Doug Ford is a conservative. Right. And this is the reality that, that our political parties, there are analogs. There are analogs. You can draw certain lines between, say, the federal conservatives and the Ontario progressive conservatives. And you can draw certain lines between the federal liberals and even the PC liberals, but it's never a one-to-one ratio. Yeah. And in the Maritimes, PC parties, at least at least historically, have generally been more to the center than, than they have been in Western Canada or in Ontario. Uh, how do you explain uh, the Green getting traction the way they are? Um, does the NDP have to fear that the Greens are going to become the third official party? I mean, I wouldn't say so yet for a few reasons. One, the NDP in, in four of Canada's provinces is one is not only a you know a major party, but one of the two major parties in mm-hmm. in BC, Alberta, uh, uh, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan. The NDP routinely forms government or forms official opposition uh, in, in in those provinces. So the party has a strong regional base. The party also has relatively strong numbers in Ontario. And one of the things you could say about uh, about the Maritimes specifically, where the Greens are strong are two provinces where the NDP has never really been as strong ever. So there's not really anything to lose. It's not like the Greens, for instance, have supported the NDP as the third party in, say, Nova Scotia, right. where the party has routinely been strong. The NDP has never, uh, 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 not to my recent memory, it's been a very long time since the NDP has elected anybody in, in PEI. It's also been a very long time in New Brunswick. And the reality is, is that in the last provincial election, and in the first provincial election in New Brunswick, where the Greens won a seat, uh, the NDP did did better than them. But the realities of first past the post is that the Greens were able to pick up, you know, one seat in each of those provinces, and then they became the official alternative. It really is the capriciousness of first past the post that in New Brunswick, for instance, uh, five years ago, if the NDP would have picked up that one seat instead of the Greens, we might have a very different scenario. So I think at the local level. It could well be the case that the Greens may supplant the NDP as the third party in both New Brunswick and PEI, at least for now. But beyond that, I think there's a long way to go. Is the Green a left? Are the Greens a left party? Compare NDP and the Green. 
I mean, that's a big question. The Green Party themselves, if you saw a graphic they put out just a couple days ago, they said, well, we're not left. It's not left or right. It's forward. Yeah. And I would say that the Green Party voters in general probably lean left, probably a little bit more so than the liberals, although there are some right-leaning Greens. And I would say the party, in a sense, um, probably has a bit of a, 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 you know, a, a desire to be seen as progressive, but, you know, there's a wide range of opinions because the Green Party is very new. It's, historically, it's a new party. It's only, yeah. I think it was formed in the 1990s. But in the sense that it's been a real party, it's been about 10, maybe 15 years that it's been an actual party that significant amounts of Canadians vote for. And so other than a sense that the environment is important, there's a wide range of views on other issues. And one of the things the Green Party that a lot of people love, like about the Green Party is it's relatively decentralized. But that does mean that, you know, at local levels and at regional levels, parties can have views that maybe don't conform to what, you know, people consider a green policy. So in a lot of countries, their green parties are more definitively left. But in Canada, you might put the, you might put the greens um, on most issues, say somewhere between the liberals and the NDP on the political spectrum is where I would, where I would put them at least in general. It was interesting. I was talking to Mike Schreiner from the Greens uh, last week and, and asking him similar questions to what I'm, uh, the discussion we're having. And, you know, and I, I, I was trying to get him to pinpoint where they are on, on the political spectrum. And he basically said, that's old politics, that parties are left or parties are right or this, that, or the other. He goes, it depends on the issue. And I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it. No, I mean, I think that's an interesting perspective. But, you know, it really depends. I mean, the argument from the left, for instance, is that, you know, the, 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 if you talk about the environment, the specific crisis is, is tied into crises of, of not only the environment, but of inequality and of opportunity and things like that. And so for the left and green movements outside of North America, largely, the green parties in Europe, for instance, they're buying into things like, like, like the Green New Deal that we're seeing percolate a little bit, which is to say that to build a green society, you sort of have to build a social democratic society. Right. And so the Green Party, I think, will have real debates about that question right. because there are left wing Greens in Canada. But then there are perhaps more market oriented Greens. And there's going to be a debate about what's the best path forward. And there's a very real chance that, you know, various green sections have different approaches. The Greens in B.C. might take a different position than the Greens in New Brunswick and right. the Greens in PEI. And so for the first time, we're not only going to see uh, you know, Greens having a balance of power like they do in B.C., where they've sort of been pulling the NDP to the center. For instance, as the NDPs wanted to improve labor standards, the Greens have told them to slow down. Hmm. Um, but in PEI, they have a real chance to actually build a caucus, more than, more than just one or two or three people, to actually build a team. And let's see what that team as a kind of group proposes and, and, and what they oppose from the new government. Christo Abelis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Postdoctoral Fellow in History at the University of Toronto. Fascinating times, Christo. Thanks for yours. Much appreciated. Thanks for, thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked an awful lot over the years about recycling, what goes in, what goes out, what can we put in the blue box, all that sort of thing. Uh, but we really haven't heard much on if this is a successful operation or not. Where does it all go? What happens to it? Is the strategy working? Let's bring in Carolyn Jarvis, anchor Global News. You see her uh, every night and uh, been following this. And, and this is the first uh, of a series of reports on Canada's re- recycling industry. And Carolyn Jarvis is with us now. Carolyn, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, it's my pleasure. So how has our recycling strategy changed over the years? Because it seems as if they're accepting more. Well, it depends where you live. Uh, in BC, they're accepting more. In the rest of the country, I would say they're accepting either the same, but sending a lot of it to landfill, or they're accepting less, seems to be the trend we documented as we surveyed more than 40 municipalities, companies, and industry leaders across Canada What's happening is that in January 2018, China, which was our number one export market, shut its doors to the world's recycling and the world's trash and said, we don't want to deal with your garbage anymore. And other Asian countries scrambled to fill the void, but they slowly started shutting their doors to Canadian recycling and the world's recycling also. And so we're left with this conundrum. We're using more packaging than ever. We're consuming more stuff than ever. We're obsessed with stuff. 
and everything that goes along with that. And we don't have anywhere to send the garbage that we think is recyclable, and in some cases is, and in some cases isn't. But right now, we don't have a buyer for some of it. So what was China doing with it? Well, it depended on what we were shipping to them. Uh, Some people here in Canada who are in the know and in the industry believe that what was happening is that Chinese processors for recycling were just taking the good quality material out of a bale, which is a big compressed cube of recycling, and essentially burning the rest of it. I mean, without being on the ground in China, I have no way of verifying that journalistically, but Mm -hmm. uh, certainly what they said in January 2018 was that the contamination rates, the, the purity of this recycling is 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 lacking and so we're only going to take premium product and marginal amounts of that and deal with your own trash so what, what was there an actual market that these products were being recycled they were being reused um or, or again is it about shipping is this about shipping stuff to countries that just have less restrictions than we do and it's easier I would say it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Hmm. I mean, I wouldn't say it's easier because I don't know that they were recycling it there. Uh, they might have been burning it is what could have been happening and or landfilling it there. But essentially, we took our problem and we exported it to somebody else. We just took a pile and we moved it across the Pacific. Um, and now it's time that we're faced with our own issues. We made this garbage. We, we bought this packaging. It's time for us to figure out what we want to do with it. Should we be buying products that have such excess packaging i'm sure we've all got examples in mind that you think of you know a kid's toy that's bundled in yeah. layers of plastic after plastic a, a simple usb drive that's yeah. packaged in like another anything from a- anything from apple <laughs> so much packaging yeah, yeah. and so we can vote with our pocketbooks or we can ask industry to step forward or another option is we can say to government like the eu just did last month please move in and make the mask because if we just sit here and bide our time until somebody decides to do good for the environment, we could be waiting a heck of a long time. How are Canadians feeling about this? Because I'm guessing we feel pretty good that we're supposed to be, you know, we're doing our part. We're putting our stuff in the green bin and the blue box and whatever. And yeah, we're doing it the way it's supposed to be done. I I mean, you know, very similar to the story in the Philippines with the, the, you know, the hundred containers of of garbage. I mean, is this just a way for us to make, uh, to feel good when really we're, uh, we're contributing to this problem? Well, I, I, the thing is, is, I don't think most Canadians think about what happens to the recycling beyond dragging that blue bin to the edge of the curb. Yeah. I think that's where our thought process ends. And we kind of like it that way, as we do with most packaging. We think, okay, so I bought the USB drive that's encased in thick plastic packaging, but I'll recycle it so it's not the end of the world. There'll be another package made of this. But we don't think about the fact that, okay, actually, there's nobody really buying that plastic packaging. There's nobody really going to reinvent that plastic packaging. And really what I'm doing is buying a tiny little project product in a big amount of plastic, and I'm throwing it into a landfill. We just don't think about it. When you tell Canadians that more of their items are going to landfill, or in, in the instance of a couple of communities, at least in Alberta, heck, we're not going to take five whole categories of packaging that we used to a year ago because we're just going to tell you outright there is no buyer here people get angry about that they get pissed off frankly because they think why no we're supposed to be expanding recycling we're supposed to be a virtuous practice we're not supposed to be reducing it but when you take the wool off their eyes the truth is is that they have nowhere to send it in st albert alberta north of edmonton you can't even recycle glass anymore, which used to be one of the pillars of a recycling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you, you know, the, and so how are municipalities going to handle this? Because as they have increased uh, the amount that we can recycle, they have lessened the amount of garbage we can put out. So, uh, you know, and, and Canadians just had to figure out, like you said, column A, column B, bin A, bin B, what have you. But now if you're taking, for example, less glass, where does the glass go? Does that go into the garbage? Does that mean now that municipalities will have to increase the amount of garbage a, uh, a homeowner can put out? Because maybe if you used to have four blue bins, maybe now you've only got two. You know, the impact of the taxpayer and for municipalities, that's a really, really good question, is, is, um, is multifold, if you will. So number one, uh, yes, more is being sent to landfill, whether they sort it at a recycling facility and truck it to a landfill, which is what happens in places like Toronto and elsewhere, or they say to you at the outset, just put it straight in your garbage. We're not going to kid ourselves here. Um, That is one impact. Number two, because the cost, the financial cost of recycling is becoming so expensive 
taxes could go up in some municipalities, quite literally, or we could see programs being cut. You know, in a small town of uh, Kawartha Lakes, Ontario, they're having to cut instruction of recycling, uh, meaning their outreach campaign that they do at elementary schools because they ha- need to curb costs because they lost so much money in their recycling program year over year. So literally even teaching the virtues of recycling to young kids yeah. has to be cut down. This whole program is shifting, and we've all played a role in getting us here. Uh, what is it shifting? What direction is it going in, Carolyn? I mean, are we going backwards on this? Well, if you ask Lorenzo Danini, who is uh, head of municipal affairs and governmental relations for GFL, one of the biggest waste management companies, he's out in Western Canada, he said we're headed off a cliff, point blank. And if we don't do something about it, we're going we're gonna to go off that cliff. Uh, you know, we need to rethink this system. One of the solutions a lot of people are saying needs to happen right away is the model that BC has adopted. And we talk about that a lot on Wednesday in the third part of our series, which is three parts running through the early part of this week. And on Wednesday, we talk about what's happened in British Columbia, which is called Extended Producer Responsibility. It's a really fancy title that means essentially the companies that make a product in BC pay for the recycling system, start to finish, from curbside collection to processing to manufacturing plant. They pay for the entire life cycle of it. And people in the rest of Canada are saying, here also, bring it here, bring it here. In Ontario, where your listeners are right now in Hamilton, um, Ontario has signaled it's moving that way. The last government talked about going there. They didn't put a firm date in, but they were, you know, um, sketching outlines around 2022, 2023 is what discussions paper have. Right now, companies are required to pay for 50% of the recycling budget that the province has, but they don't operate it. And and people will say, until you operate the recycling system, they won't really take control for the end life cycle of a package. Uh, I was just going to ask you, what is the industry responsibility here? Is this the answer, making them pay the complete freight from the, the second it's produced till when it's uh, disposed? Uh, and, 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 you know, when you think about it, that will, uh, you're, you would think anyway, force them to use less packaging. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the goal of the extended producer responsibility model, the model that they've got in British Columbia, where they're very much the lead there. Europe has done this also in some form or fashion since 1990. The idea is, is that if you're responsible for not just making your pro- product but and its packaging, but also recycling that packaging, you will be more mindful of using less packaging and yeah. packaging that's more easily recyclable. In BC, they pay in a cents per kilogram way per, for recycling. And take something as easy as a carton of eggs. If you package your eggs in plastic that's difficult to recycle, you'll pay more cents per kilogram to recycle it than if you recycled it in box board in a, yep. in a paper fiber. And so they're incentivizing producers in BC to use packaging that's more environmentally friendly. The tipping point hasn't been reached yet in BC where people just completely reinvent their packaging to something that's the best because, frankly, they don't have market share yet to do it. BC is a small enough project, product, rather province, that um, manufacturers are saying, ah, okay, so it cost me a little bit more to recycle my product in BC. It's just the cost of doing business. Until they have the entire country on side, or at least a couple heavyweight provinces like Ontario and Quebec as well, we may not see the substantive change that people are calling for. So my guess is this will lead to higher costs, which will trickle down to the consumer. But then at the end of the day, you've still got a problem with too much waste and no place to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, fundamentally, we've got to stop making the waste. That's an issue. And we, we've got to go return to that one of the fundamentals of the three R's, which is reuse. You know, I've got kids at home. Gosh, I hope they're not listening to this. But, you know, when they use their Ziplocs every day, even just this weekend, I was harping on them. I said, bring those Ziplocs back so I can yeah. watch them. I sound like my grandma. But you can reuse those over and over and over and over again. And chances are that thin plastic film that Ziplocs are made of is not being recycled in most cases. It depends on the manufacturing plant. Some are, some aren't. There's no homogeneity. Uh, there's no consistency across Ontario, unfortunately, given our current model. But we need to be reusing this stuff. So when we get a product, we can't just look at packaging as this disposable thing. We need to be reusing it ourselves so you're maximizing the life cycle of a product. And I also believe that products that we create need to contain recycled content. So we're finding what's called the circular economy within the manufacturing 
system. Uh, China not taking this now, which obviously is started a lot of this problem. Is the world becoming more conscious of this? I mean, you know, we're seeing uh, what's happening in oceans and plastics and so on and so forth. Uh, is it is it one of those? And, you know, again, look what happened with the Philippines situation. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, this sort of situation gives countries or manufacturers a black eye. Is the tide changing here? Is it turning? I mean, are we just is this really a landfill issue or is it a plastics issue? Well, I think they both go hand in hand because we're seeing plastics in landfill. Um, and you asked me earlier, you know, are people more aware of this now? I mean, I think the answer is yes, but I, I often hear, I just hear a lot of lip service about this. I would love to see really bold action. I'm, you know, not speaking editorially, but you look at places like California where they regulate the percentage of recycled content that their plastics have to contain, and it's caused seismic shifts in that industry. Um, you look at Europe, where they banned single-use plastics, but a month ago, and that's going to change the way things are looking. You know, people even said, "What if the government of Canada or the city of Toronto, two of the biggest buyers of products in our country, said, I will only buy products that that hold a certain percentage of recycled content?' That would shift the way companies make their products because they're such a huge purchaser. But we haven't required that, and in, and until we start moving in a really bold direction. I think the change we see will be incremental at best. You know, I see what you're saying, Carolyn, about uh, excess packaging and too much, but at the end of the day, we still do need some. It's frightening when recyclable programs aren't taking glass. (laughs) I mean, as you mentioned, that's where it started. I mean, we take our empties back to the beer store. Is this getting to the point where you will go into a grocery store and fill a container with milk that you brought as opposed to buying three bags? that because there have been articles done about um, zero waste stores in Toronto that I haven't visited myself but essentially embrace that very notion where there doesn't have to be packaging I mean going back to our roots where I suppose you went to a market and you had your basket and you filled it up I mean why is it that when we go to the grocery store nine out of ten people feel feel that they've got to put their tomatoes inside a plastic bag before they bring it home why can't we just put our tomatoes in the cart yeah um, why is it that when you buy three oranges you got to put those in a plastic bag we were so obsessed with plastic um, that it's become our new norm. And I think there needs to be a real cultural shift away from that in order for there to be a mindset change. And we, we've already we, bigger shift. we've already seen this with shopping bags. I mean, lots of people are bringing their own shopping bags or, yeah. or what have you, or, or stores are charging uh, five cents or what have you per bag. And, and we're starting to see some movement there. So wh- how is this going to work out? I mean, again, is it are, are we going to be bringing our own bags of containers uh, uh, to put stuff in? Um, how well, how do we... Such, I don't know, but I mean... <laughs> If I had the magic ball that told me what would yeah. happen in the future, um, I'd be very rich woman. Yes. But, uh, but would that be the worst thing? I mean, honestly, like if you brought a basket and you filled it up, would that be so awful? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I just think that we've gotten so used to things being um, served to us in a, in a heavily packaged way, um, and a lot of it is for preserving of the ingredients or whatever inside of it, that, that we don't know anything different. And maybe we just need to get back to the fundamentals of things being pure and and unpackaged and unrefined. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. The other way is saying, okay, we need this packaging, and certainly in the industrial sector, which is a completely different story here, um, it's required. But maybe the government needs to say, let's let's make sure that when you're using packaging, you're using packaging that isn't single-use, like the EU has said. And if you're going to be making plastic packaging, that it it contains a certain percentage of recycled content. That way, at least you drive the recycling loop forward. Otherwise, yeah. like there's a manufacturing plant outside of Stratford in Listowel called EFS Plastics that does some of the most advanced stuff with recycling plastics. One of the very few places in Canada that will take those shopping bags you just talked about. Yeah. We're getting three to four calls a week from municipalities and recyclers across North America saying, will you please take my plastic film? Plastic film is the industry word for those shopping bags, grocery bags. And they're turning them down three to four times a week because they're saying, we are at capacity. We cannot recycle more plastic bags than we are already recycling. We're just, there's like, ain't enough. But what they did say to me was, is, if a government in Canada said, okay, all plastic bags going forward have to contain 15% recycled content, yeah. they said to me it would be the signal they needed to expand their plant and they could recycle more bags. There you go. But 
what's happening right now is it's cheaper to make a new bag than it is to recycle an old. So the economics don't make sense. All right, this is part one of a three-part series investigating the state of Canada's recycling industry. Carolyn Jarvis has been with us, Anchor Global News. What's What can we expect in the uh, the next couple of reports on this, Carolyn? So tomorrow we really delve down to the, into the dollars and cents. We talk about the losing economics of recycling and what's that meant for, what that's meant for municipalities both here and the United States. And then in part three, we really delve into who's doing it differently, and we alluded to it in our discussion in British Columbia, and where there might be room for governments to step in with some bold action. All right, Carolyn Jarvis has been with us. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight, 5.30 and 6, for more on all of this. Carolyn, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for the time. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, in Cambridge at the Toyota plant this afternoon and what is being described as a major product announcement. To talk more about all of this, Dennis Drogier is with us, auto uh, industry analysis, uh, Drogier Automotive Consultants. He is with us now. Dennis, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, no problem at all. Thank you for uh, taking the time. And what do you know about what's happening in uh, at Toyota in Cambridge today? I don't know a lot of the details. The announcement is happening, I think, right now as we're speaking. Uh, they're putting another vehicle, a couple of Lexus vehicles, into the plant. Uh, last year they had moved Corolla out, and there was all kinds of speculation of whether what, what happened to that plant. Well... Uh, they chose uh, appropriate product, and it's uh, good news for Canada all around. Uh, the rumor has it uh, building two more Lexus SUVs at the Cambridge plant. Um, I remember when the uh, plant, the General Motors plant in Oshawa closed down, many were questioning the health of the Ontario auto industry. What are your thoughts, especially after this announcement? If you stand on the edge of our industry and look into the market, uh, it has never been better. We've had 2 million units bought per year for the last two years uh, over this, uh, in this century, 2000. We had 17 million vehicles on the road. Now we have 27 million vehicles on the road, an extra 10 million. That represents a huge amount of opportunity, fixing vehicles, selling vehicles, new and used. If you stand on the edge of our industry and look into our factories, it's a less positive story. Not overly negative, mind you, but we aren't seeing the uh, uh, production side do as well as the market side. Uh, A couple of plant closings, uh, the parts industry has been somewhat volatile uh, and probably more to come. Uh, this Toyota announcement is good news as a result, very, very good news, because it shows that Canada uh, is a viable production base, um, and uh, Toyota is going to take advantage of that. Why is Ontario good for Toyota? Well, I, I think the, the type of vehicle that they're putting in is really critical. Uh, first of all, both are luxury vehicles. Luxury is the fastest-growing segment in North America. Uh, and if you go back to the Pacifica announcement at SCA down in Windsor, uh, it wasn't selling. And if you're not selling well, then you ultimately have to cut back production. Luxury vehicles are selling incredibly well. Luxury vehicles are also high-margin vehicles. And so some of the cost issues that a Canada would have to, a vehicle company in Canada has to confront uh, are a little easier with a high-margin vehicle versus a low-margin vehicle. Uh, and that obviously helps trigger these kinds of investments uh, as well. With the situation in General Motors and the closing of that plant, was that simply due to just not picking the right models to uh, to build? Obviously, which, as you just mentioned, uh, Toyota has found the sweet spot here. There is an element to that. Um, it's all, I, I'm hesitant to use the word luck. But to a degree, there is a certain amount of luck. For instance, I go back to the minivan uh, back in the early 1980s. Uh, Chrysler originally had planned to build a car into that plant. Uh, and at the last minute, changed it to the minivan, a vehicle that nobody understood or knew about, and were criticized for it quite extensively. It turns out to be one of the most successful plants in the history of the Canadian auto industry. Uh, and luck partially was to do with that, choosing a vehicle that at one point consumers embraced. They're not embracing it anymore, 
when you go back into the 80s and the 90s and it was the hottest selling vehicle in the marketplace. Um, and so um, luck, yes, but uh, certainly uh, everything positive in industry revolves around three words, product, product, and product. And everything negative in our industry is around the same three words, uh, product issues and product issues and product issues. And so uh, Toyota's chosen well in this case, and they're going to be rewarded for it. Is it just a matter of time before these plants do leave for, for uh, cheaper environments? Not necessarily in Canada. I think uh, the chances of getting an all-new Greenfield plant are near zero, never say never, but it's highly unlikely. But the, pro- the possibility of keeping virtually everything that we have, so we're going to keep everything we have, but uh, most of our plants, uh, from a footprint point of view, have long-term survivability. There's one or two that could be questioned, uh, but for the most part, we should be able to maintain uh, a fairly healthy production environment, although it's going to be swing. Right now, we're heading into a downturn in the marketplace, and uh, most companies have to cut back a little bit. If people aren't buying vehicles, you don't need to make a vehicle. Everything related to production starts when someone buys a vehicle. Um, so there'll be good times and there'll be bad times, but I am far, far away from believing that we're going to be another Australia who has lost all of its auto manufacturing, uh, entirely, uh, Canada still is very viable. Uh, we've seen gas prices increase, uh, uh, quite a bit in the last little while, especially if you look, uh, across the country, places like British Columbia and such, is that going to, how is that going to affect the auto industry moving forward? Or is this just one of those things and then they come back down and nobody cares? Well, most of the people in this country who have a vehicle or one or two in the driveway, if you've got more than one driver in your household, uh, own that vehicle because of fundamental need. The fundamental need normally is if you have a job in Canada, there's a good chance you have no choice but to have a vehicle. You can't get back and forth to work. Um, So what gas prices do is changes the mix. And so if we ever got back to the uh, dollar a liter uh, level or $2 a liter or however high it might go, uh, people would move back to the passenger car. Passenger cars on a model-to-model basis, you take the same size and structure or same size of model car versus same size of model light truck, the car is going to be about two liters per hundred kilometers more fuel efficient. And high gas prices will push consumers back towards more most fuel efficient vehicles. These low gas prices have just been a nirvana for the consumer. They've been going out and they say, I don't, you know, everything, uh, I don't, because of low price of gasoline, uh, I'm going to buy the vehicle I really want. And, what consumers typically want is the biggest, most powerful vehicle in the driveway. may not make a lot of sense in some cases, but that's the fundamental nature of the auto owner. Uh, they usually want bigger, more powerful, or perceived as better. What about electric vehicles? Uh, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, it wasn't that long ago Ford was suggesting they were getting out of the sedan business and just, you know, doing hybrid sort of crossover SUV things. Where does that leave the discussion? Well, all roads lead to electric, first of all. And so uh, longer term, uh, electrics are going to uh, uh, have their day. Uh, they've been in the marketplace, a lot of people don't realize this, they've been in the marketplace for 16 years now. So this concept that government also throws out is, well, just give a little bit of time until some volume builds and we'll be able to drop subsidies and things like that. Well, 15 years is a long time. Uh, there's still a lot of compromises by an electric vehicle um, that the vehicle companies are working to solve. They will ultimately solve them. But the electric vehicles probably will have their day um, in the 2030s to 2050 timeframe is where you're going to really see them take off. This next decade, we'll kind of be feeling it out, developing the technology. Uh, they will have some element of success. But last year, they had less than 3% of the Canadian marketplace. Uh, and it's been and the same in the United States. And so it's going to be a long time before they actually have a real impact in the marketplace. Um, I disagree with the government uh, subsidy issue. I don't, if, if a product needs subsidies, then by definition, it's a failure. 
Uh, so I'm not in favor of subsidies to try to promote electrification. What I am in favor of is getting old gas cars off the road. Uh, every single new vehicle introduced in the marketplace, including these two new Toyotas that are being introduced into Cambridge today, uh, are going to be about 25 to 30 percent more fuel efficient than the model they replace. Hmm. And so if you were to get rid of and move off the road a lot of the vehicles over 10 years old, uh, you would overnight, uh, or virtually overnight, would, it might take a year or two, but you could improve the overall fuel efficiency by 20 to 25 percent quite easily, um, and uh, that would do more for greenhouse gases than pushing electric vehicles. Dennis Rosier has been with us, auto industry analyst, Rosier Automotive Consultants. Dennis, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Come anytime. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister just uh, very, very moments ago was speaking in uh, Cambridge at the Toyota plant there. Uh, good news is uh, that Cambridge is, uh, is going to be there for a while as far as uh, Toyota in that town and employing people there. Uh, it has been announced that they will begin building uh, two more Lexus SUVs at the Cambridge plant. Uh, that sets them up for 2022 uh, moving forward. And uh, good news, because many people were questioning the health of the Ontario auto industry once GM uh, shut the plant in Oshawa. And, of course, there for, for decades there for decades and and many wondered if uh this was going to start the the slow bleed of the auto industry out of uh ontario but obviously this good news for uh cambridge ontario and uh toyota employees up there uh to talk more about all of this let's bring in uh let's bring in ian lee sprott school of business carlton university he is with us now ian thanks for the time much appreciated my pleasure scott so your thoughts on what's happening in cambridge with toyota First off, this is obviously good news <clears throat> for Canada uh, because of all of the talk uh, that I think has been um, uh, substantially wrong for the last 10 years, going back to 2009 and the failure, the bankruptcy of uh, GM and uh, Chrysler, when many, many people were saying, including then-President Barack Obama and then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who said they had saved the automobile industry. No, they did not. Ford never went bankrupt, mm-hmm. never got bailed out. Neither did Honda of North America. Neither did Toyota of North America. Neither did any of the Korean manufacturers or the Germans. I could read all the names of the all the brands, but there's no point. There's no need. There is a Chrysler problem. There's a General Motors problem for sure. But when, for example, the president of the Unifor, uh, Jerry Diaz, you know, says, oh my goodness, you know, there's a problem in the auto industry in Canada. That's not true. Toyota has just gone from success to success in the many, many years it has been in Canada. Honda's been in Canada for 50 years. These companies are very, very successful, and their market share goes up, not down, up, and they make more money year by year. They're more and more profitable. So it is not accurate to say, it's not completely accurate to say we have a problem in the automobile industry. We do have And so I'm trying to be nuanced here. So I'm saying, look, this is the success of Toyota. Toyota does not have problems. They're very, very strong. They make very, very good cars. So this disproves the argument that the entire auto industry is, is in a mess and needs help. Having said that, that doesn't mean that we don't have problems in the auto industry. The biggest and most famous ones are those who study this, and I published an article in the Diplomat magazine last year on this, on the problems facing auto industry in Canada, is our productivity. And, and this is a problem for all manufacturing, not just cars. We are about 25% less productive per worker hour in Canada. That doesn't mean our workers are lazy. That productivity figure is a blend of, of the workers themselves and the capital that we invest called uh, machinery and equipment and plants mm-hmm. and so forth. But at the end of the day, we produce, we're 25% less productive than, than the U.S. And the other point, then the three North American car manufacturers are on the record in Canada, on the public record, not a secret statement in the back room, GM, Ford, and Chrysler have said repeatedly, Canada is the most expensive place in the world to make cars. So GM, Ford, and Chrysler have a problem. It doesn't seem to affect 
you know, Mercedes in North America, not that they're in Canada. So uh, why but, does Toyota stay here? Why don't they just not go to Mexico? Well, I have uh, a couple of, uh, I'll call them theories because I can't prove them, uh, interpretations. And, and the first one is, I think they're betting that the uh, NAFTA 2.0, or the new NAFTA, as I like to call it, is going to eventually prevail. It may take another year or two, as I think it will, but I think that ultimately, once the politics dies down and the elections are over, I think that Toyota is making a bet on the future that the new NAFTA is going to prevail and be adopted. And there's increased content uh, protection for North American-made cars. So that's one answer. Secondly, I think this demonstrates, because the Canadian market is too small, that they're going to use this plant in, in Cambridge to export to the United States. And thirdly, to address the tangential question you just brought up about Mexico, and this is my direct response really to Jerry Diaz, who says, oh my God, oh my, you know, Mexico is terrible, they're just beating, you know, they're just clobbering us. That's simply not true. The U.S. share, because they make the most cars in those three countries, the U.S. share of cars in the auto market in North America today is exactly the same as it was 30 years ago before Mexico really got into the car business. What's shifted in the last 10 or 15 years is Canada and Mexico have changed places, but the U.S. didn't. So Trump was wrong when he kept saying that, you know, Mexico is taking all their jobs in the car industry. Their share of market is the same today as 30 years ago. And so that's one important point. The second important point is Mexico is really dominating in small cars. And I think the record is showing increasingly, I mean the actual production record, that North American car companies, and I'm talking Ford, Chrysler, and GM, they've, I talk about this in my class, they've lost their way making cars. They can make damn good trucks. And I think many of your listeners would say, right on, you know, F-150 and the Dodge Ram and so forth. But I don't think they make such good cars anymore. And if you look at the car sales, I'm not talking trucks. I'm not talking pickup trucks. I'm not talking big SUVs. I'm talking car cars. They're not doing very well. I'm talking Ford, GM, and Chrysler. And that's what we're losing to Mexico. They're making those small cars with with great uh, efficiency and great success. Whereas if you look at the, the big stuff, the big metal, you know, the F-150s and the Dodges and, and the big SUVs, the Durangos and, you know, all these, they're being made in the U.S. and Canada. So the high end of the auto industry. And so I think that's our future. If we think we're going to compete with Mexico, who, to use his famous phrase, Jerry Diaz, is they're making $13 or $10 an hour and our people are making $65 an hour, well, you can't. So don't make small, cheap cars that you can't compete with. Make big honking cars, trucks, SUVs, where the profit margin is vastly bigger, where most of the car sales are in North America, 60% of all sales are SUVs and trucks. People increasingly, we Canadians and Americans, are voting with our feet. We're not buying cars. So let the Mexicans make little uh, puddle jumpers, and they can export them to Europe and South America and elsewhere. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.